Welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. Amen. Amen. Nice to see you all, guys. Um, if you're new, yes, as Dan was saying, my name's David, I'm part of the, the leadership team here, um, and it's great to be able to be together uh, this morning. Hands up if you're a hay fever sufferer. It's a pretty bad week, right? I don't have a cold, this is just a hay fever, so yeah, we can kind of be in a little team together, <laughs> together. but hopefully you can still hear me okay through the, through the microphone. We're going to um, spend a bit of time in the book of Acts again. We're in this series, Liberated by Love. We've been in it since the start of the year. We've moved from the Gospels into the book of Acts, looking at these encounters of the Holy Spirit with this new community that's formed called the Church. Um, we'd previously been looking at the story uh, in the Gospels of Jesus um, and how that he has brought the kingdom of God to earth and has begun um, remaking this world around an axis of love um, and how that the kingdom of God, as we call that, is ushering in um, a liberation for everyone from everything that would enslave us, that would oppress us, that would keep us captive, that would hold us back. Um, and so we're going to continue that today. I love this quote, and I shared it two weeks ago by a scholar, Willie Jennings, just about the book of Acts in general. Um, he says, the book of Acts is the beginning of revolution. It is the overturning of the, of the ways in which boundaries and borders have been designed by us to tell us who we are and where we should go. The book of Acts is God's way of overcoming not only these boundaries and borders, but reconstituting what it means to be a people striving for a future, redirecting that future towards a new reality of joining. This is revolution in the deepest sense of the word. We're gonna actually look at that today because everything in our world seeks to really divide us and there's something beautiful in the kingdom of God that is trying to bring us into a future of joining where everyone and every, is, is liberated from everything that would seek to enslave us and divide us. Um, so we're jumping into Acts chapter six and seven, and we're gonna actually look at the example of Stephen today in, in, in these chapters. You'll remember a few weeks ago at the start of Acts, we discussed how this new church, awakened by grace, awakened by the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the descendant of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, has formed and is, is growing numerically and there's growing needs in this community, and the needs are growing as well. And we talked about particularly the needs of widows in that community, those that are, were most in need. Um, those needs just grew and grew and grew, and the apostles realized they needed to begin to delegate leadership and responsibility to others, and they appointed seven. It says seven were chosen, um, who were known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And among those seven was Stephen and Philip and a bunch of others. Um, and they became what is known as the first deacons in the church. And I know that is like a church word for a type of leadership, particularly in the traditional church. But really their responsibility was to organize the monies, to wait the tables, and to make sure that this new family of God, all the needs were met, that everything was distributed 
fairly and on time and in the right places. It was a really significant role, real administrative role, real pastoral role of leadership. And as I say, it was particularly um, the church trying to look out for those who were in great need, particularly the widows in the community at the time. So Stephen, we're going to look at Stephen. Um, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 6, verse 8 to 15. Hopefully it'll be up on the screen behind. Stephen and one of these deacons. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of them who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, Syrians, Alexandrians, and others who came from Sicilia and Asia stood up and argued with Peter. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like that, was like the face of an angel. We're going to jump into Acts 7 in a moment, but Stephen here, he's, he's, he's got arrested now, so he's, he's got this role in the church now, he's got arrested. And up to now, it seems like in the early church, they were hanging out day to day in the temple, and they would have witnessed bear witness about the life of Christ to people in the temple. But Stephen had kind of changed tactics. He was beginning to go around the Greek-speaking synagogues, and he was beginning to share about what he'd experienced. And in those places, uh, the, the, those Jews were not defending a position of power like the ones in the temple would have been, but they were, they were defending a worldview. They were a way of living. And everything that Stephen shared was beginning to kind of threaten that worldview threatened that way that they um, were used to living. And we'll not get into the speech, but basically he says that just like their ancestors, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day had refused and rejected the appointed Messiah, and they'd continued to go their own ways. N.T. Wright in his commentary says that they not only handed Jesus over to be killed by pagans, but they were, they were living out the same pattern that their ancestors had lived out, which was to make Israel's history become not a story of salvation, but a story of rebellion. And that was what he was presenting to them. You, you're, you're, you've kind of gone off piste here. You're, you're not living according to the story. You're, you're actually rebellious in your ways. And um, he, was, he was imploring them. Um, let's read on. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 54, it'll come up on the screen. When, these, when they heard these things, they became enraged, and they ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him, and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. In chapter 8, verse 1, and Paul, or in Saul, who later we know became 
became Paul, approved of their killing him. Really interesting little mention of Saul there, who we now know went on to become Paul, but we're not at that stage yet. Maybe Stephen is best known for Boxing Day. Yes, and Stephen's Day. It's the day when we celebrate. Stephen was the first martyr of the church. He was the first to lay down his life, to, for his life to be taken um, for his faith. The word martyr means witness, means to bear witness. I suppose it means to like give evidence for the faith that you believe. I guess you could say it's come to mean what we mean, someone who dies for their faith, because they're, they're, they're a person who's bearing witness to some kind of reality or truth that is worth giving their whole life to. They're bearing witness to like, ultimate reality. So we think of martyrs. And so we know Stephen was the first martyr of the church. We also know he was a person of grace and power who did wonders and signs among the people. It says that in the chapter. And obviously he was really um, good in debate. He, he liked to start a debate. He gives this big speech that we haven't got into, but I've just summarized. And you could go and study that in your own time. But basically he was a good debater. So he wasn't just distributing the monies and waiting the tables. He was clearly had this teaching aspect to his ministry, his, this evangelism aspect to his ministry, and he gets killed for it. And there's a couple of things I just wanted us to reflect upon this morning when we just think about this story in Acts. Think, what does it mean and how does it relate to us? And how does it mean and relate to being liberated by love? And firstly, Acts 6.15 says that Stephen, Stephen saw, he, his face was like the face of an angel, it said which is just a really interesting thing to think about for a little minute. What does that even mean? What did that even look like? That he was getting criticized by these leaders and then they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I guess it's clear that Stephen saw things that others could not. This was the nature of the debate. He was trying to show them the reality, the way he saw things and they just were not seeing it for the way he saw them. But the Holy Spirit can, there's people like that, like that. There's people that have those gifts that can see things, have visions, dreams. But also the Holy Spirit in each one of us can help us see with new eyes things that we never saw before. Look at the same thing again and see it in a completely different light. The scholar N.C. Wright, he describes this uh, seeing this vision that maybe Stephen had. It says that he, you know, he says, look, and he looks into the heavens. N.T. Wright describes that, not like a portal that opens up before us into like a different world, but more like if you're wandering on the mountain with mist and the mist clears, and then you just see the towns and the villages and the view that was always there in the real world, but you just couldn't see it. He's not looking into like a different world away over here. He's seeing what is really there, but the kind of cloud has parted and, he's, and it's grounded. He's, he's essentially standing on the threshold of heaven and earth, if you want to put it like that. The language word, which means he's seeing things in a heavenly way, in a divine way. He's, he's seeing the world in a completely different light. And perhaps when you face death, when you're being persecuted, perhaps things become crystal clear. What really matters? Perhaps that's what's happening here. As he stood on this threshold and he could just see through their words and see through their actions and they were blind. The temple itself was supposed to be the place where heaven and earth meet, where, where this world meets God's kingdom. But here Stephen demonstrates with his face, like the face of an angel, 
The heaven and earth is not in a place. Heaven and earth is in the people of Christ, every single one. That's where heaven and earth meets. In the people of Christ, in the people of the church, you and me filled with the Spirit, it's where heaven and earth meet. It's where reality touches down. It's the first reflection I just wanted to bring this morning that Stephen saw. He saw, he had a a vision of seeing things differently. And I guess perhaps it's just something to think about for each of you. How how do you, sometimes you maybe rub up against people because you kind of see things differently. And you see the world and you see the economics of the world differently. You see the injustice differently and they don't see the injustice. You see the plight of people differently and people miss that. You see through Jesus' eyes. Perhaps you can relate to the way that Stephen saw. Um, The second thing that I think I want to just hang out on a little bit longer this morning is that Stephen forgave. So two weeks ago we talked about how this new church community was built on the foundation of Christ. But then it also began to like be formed in the way of Christ. It's clear to me that Stephen was clearly formed in a different way to operate. Because it says that in verse 60, he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice. I imagine his face still shining at the face of an angel. And he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he died. It's... It's really, really remarkable. It's really, really remarkable. I think it's remarkable in our day and age. It's really, really remarkable in that day and age. You could say that he was outnumbered. What a choice did he have? But he, he had a choice whether he could forgive or not. And I guess it's another thing that Stephen is bearing witness to. He's bearing witness to like a different way of, doing, of not returning vengeance with vengeance or anger with anger, he's forgiving them. And the thing is, in that time, there were many martyrs in Jewish, in, in, the, in Jewish history. About 200 years before Jesus' day, a pagan king from Syria took over Jerusalem, desecrated the temple, and forced many of the Jews to renounce their law and their ancestral way of living and even to eat pork, which we know was forbidden in the law. And the aim was to, 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 renou- to get them to renounce their identity, their national identity, to exert control. It would be easier to govern these people if they conformed to the way that we would live. Less likely to rebel, but actually the, the opposite happened. Many Jews resisted, and there are vivid accounts of how they met their deaths. They were murdered. And we're told in particular um, what they said. They not only bear witness to their own faith in particular and the resurrection that they would believe in, but they also would have, in their death, threatened the torturers. As they would have been being killed, these martyrs would have said that God has forsaken our people. Keep on and see how his mighty power will torture you and your descendants. So these are martyrs you're kind of going down with a different kind of attitude. You, wait, you know, you're, killing, you're killing us now, you're oppressing us now, but wait till you see, because our God is going to triumph with vengeance. He's going to torture you and your descendants. This was the kind of context of the first century world. Utterly typical of many Jewish stories, of people being tortured and killed for their faith and their way of life, but thinking that their God would triumph in the same way. It's actually extraordinary that the earliest Christians would have been any different 
that they would have had any different kind of response going to their death. They would say it anything differently. And Stephen, he's just laid out this great speech. But when it comes to his, and he's, he's laid it out in a powerful way. It says, if you read back in the speech, he, sh- he shouted it and he declared it with confidence. But when it came to his own dying, when it came to his own death, he, you know, the, the stones are coming at him and his body is being crushed. And at that point, he doesn't fight. He doesn't shout. He, he asks God to not hold this sin against them, to forgive them. And it's every bit as remarkable as the speech they gave and the life that he lived. And it's an upending of this tradition that he was part of, where they would return anger with anger, or violence with violence. And it reminds me of someone, <laughs> it's the Sunday school question, but it reminds me of Matthew 5. It reminds me of Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes when he says that you have heard it said, you've heard the way that it goes, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The words of Jesus, the the ethic of Jesus that clearly Stephen had been formed in, that clearly Stephen had been impacted by, like a different way of living, a different way of responding to the greatest tragedies, the greatest opposition that could come against you. It's, you could nearly title that particular passage under like crazy things Jesus says. Enemy love. Enemy love. I mean, not just, it's hard enough to, to love your friends, right? <laughs> Enemy love. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who pray. It sounds like Twitter, right? It sounds like the world we live in, yeah? Just, you know, if someone comes against you, just bless them, right? I don't think so. I mean, Jesus is kind of operating at some kind of different level. And really, this is, this is one of the most central teachings of Jesus, this ethic of enemy love. And Stephen is just, he's following this way. He's not just believing in Jesus, but he's believing in the way of Jesus. And he's upending the traditions and the, and the cultural ways in which you would just respond with evil with evil. He's changing the rules completely, breaking the cycle of retribution, retaliation, and violence. Just in, in, in the simple act of forgiveness. This is all he, I mean, all he does when he's being stoned is forgive. But it's not all he does. This is what he's, when he does that, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful statement. He is breaking a cycle of retribution, retaliation, and violence. He's redefining the definition of who is your neighbor. And he's expanding what it actually might mean to love in the way that the Father has asked it. And we know this 
because we see all this in the life of Jesus. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said. That's the script. You've heard that it was said. You've heard this is the way. But now I say, there's like a break of the cycle. Do you ever think that someone, someone has to kind of break the cycle eventually? Someone has to say, no, I'm not going to fight back. It's kind of baked into the very heart of Jesus' teaching. There's this script that you inherit, and then there's this, I suppose it's essentially the Holy Spirit that comes and transforms your way of thinking, and goes, no, this is not the way I should react. I'm going to do the countercultural thing, the counterintuitive thing. I'm going to respond to hate with love. It's, it's just a breaking of a cycle. And Stephen is doing this in his death. And in the Jesus way, we're going to get into that in a moment, is to love and to pray for your, your enemies. I mean, this was going to, again, in Jesus' time when he was teaching this ethic of love, I mean, this was, again, as I've said, the way would have been to oppose. This was, they were, Jesus came in, you know, in the first century, it was an occupied Palestine, you know, occupied by the Roman Empire and the rule of Caesar. And the Jewish people had many, many, many enemies. And so love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He was like, cool, I get that. I've got many enemies. I'll love my neighbor, I'll hate my, my enemy. And I suppose 21st century people that we are, we can't, we can't relate to that, right? We don't have anything that divides us. I mean, in the world that we live in, we, we divide, we're divided all of the time into good and to bad, in and out, right and wrong, clean and unclean. And yet, even today, even as Christians, we're still in need of a wake-up call to break that script, to break the cycle Otherwise, we become formed just like the world. Because what it means to be worldly. I mean, I used to think, when I was brought up in the kind of traditional setting that I was brought up in at home, I thought to be, to be worldly meant to listen to like that certain type of music, you know? And then when you had this kind of come to Jesus moment, you would take your CDs and smash them or burn them and get rid of them. And you'd purify your life. No, to be worldly means to just go along with the way that everyone else operates, to return hate with hate. That's kind of at the heart of what Jesus is upending. That's where the liberation comes in. He's like, no. And it's, it doesn't come to us naturally. It's counterintuitive. And we struggle with the very same things today, whether it's exemplified by our political leaders, sections of the media and society. It comes direct, loud and clear from the most powerful, the status quo and the prevailing culture to fuel our fears, fuel our prejudices, fuel our hatred of anyone that is different from us anyone that comes against us. And you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus has a kind of different way. He has a different way. And you remember, remember the story of the Good Samaritan? It's a good way to think about it. Who is your enemy? And he tells the story. Or who, who is your neighbor is the question. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Stop sticking to your own people. Break the cycle. Usher in the kingdom of God where you love those that are not like you. Where you extend mercy like your father is merciful. You've also heard that passage, you know, earlier in Matthew 5, Jesus also talks about this ethic when he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. 
And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have the cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Do not return violence with violence. Turn the other cheek. Break the cycle. Do not hate those who hate you. Do not love only those who love you. Do not, resi- do not resist the one who is evil. Let him have your cloak, go the extra mile. All of these ways, it's, it's quite incredible. In the Roman-occupied world of first century Palestine, Roman soldiers had the legal right to stop anyone in the street and ask them to carry their belongings for one mile. So that's what Jesus is kind of referencing here. If anyone says, carry, carry something one mile, he's saying, yeah, dude, this is your enemy. This is like a, a soldier in the army that is occupying your land. Don't just carry it one mile, go for, go for two miles. It's kind of like a prophetic resistance and it's upending the cycle. It's taking back initiative. Roman soldiers actually could be disciplined if they abused this. They couldn't abuse it. So maybe in going the extra mile, it's nearly like slightly embarrassing the soldier. You're kind of taking back control. You're kind of like taking control of the situation and going, no, I'm going to go two miles. Maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe that's the way it would, would work out. But it, whenever it, it's breaking the cycle of, res, of resistance and it's like a prophetic resistance in a completely different way. It's blessing your enemies, loving your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So what breaks the cycle? Jesus kind of tells us there. And this is, this, this is the ethic that, remember, Stephen has clearly lived out when he's being stoned. We're looking at how Jesus has set this course in action. Love, love your enemies, as if it were as simple as that. And also pray for your enemies. Love is the way and pray for your enemies. Jesus seems clear. You're going to have some enemies. You're going to have them. You're going to have people that are going to oppose you even try to like hold you back. But remember, as a follower of my way, don't hate, especially if you're following me. Building this alternative kingdom community is gonna be a threat to the vested interests. It's gonna be a threat, so you're gonna have enemies. But Jesus says, turn the other cheek. He says, love your enemies and pray for them. Not everybody actually liked Jesus because remember Jesus himself went to his death. He had enemies too. The radical ethic that Jesus not only taught in Matthew 5 but exemplified in his own death is that love breaks the cycle. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in Acts, in the life of Stephen, when he is being stoned, he, has, he is following the way of Jesus by forgiving those and saying, Father, do not hold this sin against them. I think the bit about praying for your enemies is like, it's, like an, it's hard enough to love your enemies, never mind pray for them. I and mean, when was the last time I prayed for my, for my enemies or for those who I feel like are opposed to me? Or I don't know about you. 
When you read the Psalms in the Scriptures, you see all sorts of interesting language about fire being called down from heaven upon your enemies and all of that kind of thing. Bonhoeffer says, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side and plead for him to God. We do this vicariously because they cannot do that for themselves. There's a photograph on the screen that's going to come up. Um, and it's April 1945, and there were Allied soldiers found in Nazi, a Nazi concentration camp at Ravensbrück, north of Berlin. There was about 92,000 women and children that died there. And when they found the camp, they found a note tied to a rock uh, alongside a dead woman and a child. And it's actually a prayer. The note contained the prayer, and the prayer goes like this. O Lord, when I shall come with glory into your kingdom, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, remember also those of ill will, but do not only remember the suffering that they have inflicted on us, remember the fruits that we have borne thanks to that suffering, our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, the courage, the generosity, the greatness of heart, which have become part of our lives because of the suffering here. May the memory of us not be a nightmare to them when they stand in judgment. When they come to judgment, let all the fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. Amen. On a piece of paper attached to a rock in a concentration camp in 1945 was a prophetic resistance to the ways of this world. It was not only a love your enemy, but a pray for your enemy. And you can see that in the life of Stephen. And you see it because there's something to this kingdom of God that is, there's a way to be liberated that is just not the way the world find, tries to find liberation. It's kind of hard to imagine being in that situation and writing a prayer like that. And I guess it can make us feel like small in our faith or something, but I think it should encourage us and inspire us because it's simply men and women like us filled with the Spirit who have saw things differently. We've had a revelation where the mist has cleared and where they feel, yeah, I'm going to follow my Savior and lay down my life for others. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to turn the other cheek. And why do we do this? Emesio Dei, which means to imitate God or to use the words of Jesus in that passage in the Beatitudes, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We do this so that we can become like Christ, become like the Father God, that we are transformed. Therefore, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We do this in love. And we do it because we, we want to imitate the way. We want to imitate our, our Lord. The, way, the people of the way of Jesus are the sons of God. And as children of God, we have new identities. And we refuse to be defined by the enemy. But we are defined instead by our Father's likeness. And as his children, we imitate our Father with his love for all people. We refuse the script of our society that would say, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. 
and we break the cycle in our culture that says you only love those who love you. And we choose the radical ethic of love because that is what God is like. That is what God is like. And it is an indiscriminate kind of love. Because we see in verse 45, for he makes the sunrise on the evil and the good, and the real and the just and the unjust. There's a love of the just and the unjust. This love of God is universal. It is indiscriminate. And we are to be like our God. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. It's such, a, it's such a call, but it is a call that we're beckoned to. This is what N.T. Wright says. We must admit with shame that large sections of Christianity down the years seem to have known little or nothing of the God Jesus talked about. Much that has called itself by the name of Jesus seemed to believe in a gloomy God, a penny-pinching God, a God whose only concern is to make life difficult and salvation nearly impossible. By the same token, this passage, well, by the same token, all religions are really the same, goes the story that all gods are really variations of the same thing. But this God is different. If you lived in a society where everyone believed in this God, the true God, there would be no violence. There would be no revenge. There would not be any divisions of class or caste. Property and possessions wouldn't be nearly as important as making sure your neighbor was all right. Imagine if even a few people around you took Jesus seriously enough to live like that. Life would be exuberant, different, astonishing. People would stare. People would stare. I love that last line. People would stare. And I wonder if Saul stared at Stephen when he stood over him and kind of called for his death, his execution. The kind of the greatest apostle, the one who took the Christian faith to wider Europe and beyond, the one who wrote half the New Testament is the one who's at that point in his life called Saul persecuting the church. And it says, interestingly, by the way, in that passage, men and women were persecuted. So leaders in the church were both male and female, and they were being persecuted. I wonder if Saul stared at this countercultural way of not resisting, of turning the other cheek, of forgiving one's enemy, as it was exemplified by Stephen. This love ethic takes on even more meaning for us when we consider the cross, which we're going to do when we come to the table this morning. That we're to imitate our Father who looks like Christ. And what does Christ look like? Christ looks like the one who preached, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, forgive them. On one hill in Matthew 5, and went to a very different hill, Calvary, later in his ministry, and showed us what that love looks like in the most ultimate way by laying down his life for the world and by saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do.
a truly innocent man. Christ embodies on the cross this enemy love, this ethic of love showing us the way, and it's utterly extraordinary. Brian Zahn says that the cross is shock therapy for a world addicted to solving its problems through violence. The cross shocks us into the devastating realization that our system of violence murdered God. Ultimately, we cannot eliminate enemies through violence. Violence only multiplies enemies. The only way to eliminate enemies is to love them and forgive them. Let's stand. I'm going to invite Matt and Fran to come and lead us to the table. We're going to come to the, the table of grace, um, the table of Jesus. And if you're new this morning, if you've never been or if you've never partaken in the communion, I just want to remind you that you're really welcome to come and take of the bread and wine. It's Jesus' table. It's not our table. It's not Redeemer Central's table. It's not Dave's table or Dan's table or any of our table. This is the table of Jesus that he instituted for us to come and take because he has forgiven us once we were kind of enemies of God and he's forgiven us and he's shown us the way to be forgiven and liberated in love and we get to join in that amazing story when we celebrate Christ and his death as we take the bread which represents his body and the blood which represents his blood shed for us. Murislav Wolf says this, if you take the love your enemy out of Christianity, you've unchristianed the Christian faith. This ethic of love is the gospel. It is the gospel. And this love doesn't divide us into different groups or political power for political power. It transcends borders, walls, and nationalistic agendas. It overcomes cultural and ethnographical differences. It refuses the script and breaks the cycle. It refuses to demonize those who are different from us. It refuses to label and judge. It refuses to determine who is worthy and who is not. It refuses to say who is better and who is worse. It refuses to say who is righteous and who is unrighteous. The cross is the great leveler that we all stand before. And we, if we are allowed, if we allow it, let love wash over all of us. There is no us and them. We partner in this love ethic and we refuse the divisions. And the cross of Jesus is the powerful symbol of this ethic of enemy love, of being liberated to the point where you can forgive those who are against you. Whoever may be against you today, maybe not trying to take your life, but you'll come against opposition, people that are against you, even the systems of this world that you're fighting up against, maybe in your job or every day. The hope that we have is that kingdom of God is here and the way of Jesus is livable and possible and we come to celebrate that radicalized people radicalized by love at the cross of Christ so as Matt and Fran lead us let us come and celebrate this new way of being human and this new way of living let us declare our trust in Jesus again today and his beautiful way and let us invite the Holy Spirit to empower us to live that way faithfully and resist prophetically the ways of this world. Matt.
I'm just uh, really aware, just as we've come to the table, just how, um, how difficult it can be, how easy it can be to say, forgive your enemies, and how difficult that can actually be in real life, how easy it can be to say, pray for your enemies, and how difficult it might be to actually really, really do that. So there's no shame in this place today if that's actually a step that you just can't take today. But I would just love to kind of just close our time just by maybe bringing this all together in a prayer. Just by not rushing, but just by sitting for just a minute and just bringing before the Lord all the kind of complicated relationships and events of our lives and, and just saying, Lord, I don't really know what to do with this, but I'm going to hand it over to you and trust you with it. So would you join me in that prayer? And then we can, we can come to a close. Father, I thank you today for Jesus, firstly, and for his, the beautiful way of Jesus that we have come to see as being, as being the way, as being the, the, the reality, the ultimate truth. And yet the way is narrow. And it's actually not easy. And Lord, we live in a complicated world with complicated relationships and complicated events and histories. And so we want to be real about that. We want to bring it all before you. In fact, we want to bring it to the cross. And we want to ask you, Lord, would you help us? Would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to move in the direction of love? Help us to move in the direction of forgiveness, even if it's one small step today. Would you help us and empower us to follow you on this narrow but beautiful way. And Lord, we just celebrate you for your example and for your love for us and for the ways that we're forgiven, for the ways that we've missed the mark, for the ways that you have forgiven us and you have made us whole and are making us whole every day. And Lord, I just pray that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit equipped and empowered to be able to go out and to be that prophetic resistance in the world by indiscriminate everyday acts of love and forgiveness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.